You're listening to a podcast from River City Church of Jacksonville, Florida. For more audio and video podcasts, visit rccjax.com. That was, that was really good. You know, we're in the middle of a discipleship series. We're not sure how long it's going to last. We're just going to keep talking about it until we feel like God redirects us. Two weeks ago, I talked about, um, what did I talk about? What I talked about that they were together, and I talked about in Acts four, uh, 2, that kind of section, Acts 2, we're going to read it in a minute. I said that these are the first disciples. These are the disciples that um, had just experienced Jesus at Pentecost through the Holy Spirit. They're the first ones. And whatever they did following that, we should probably do also, shouldn't we? And I went on to say that, and they were together. And I talked about them being together being the most significant thing about what they did. Being together, just them, because they were from different lands, from different countries, they were extremely diverse, and them being together was a reflection of God's power and the difference of Christians and what the new Christians did and the importance of being together. And they were together all the time. They were together at the temple courts and big groups like this and corporate, big corporate groups. But then it says that they were together all day long and they left the temple courts and they would go and be in each other's homes. And they were together all the time. I'm not going to go, I'm not going to talk more about this because uh, it's in a talk two weeks ago. You should go listen to it if you haven't. If you're one of those six girls here, it's two weeks ago. It's on Ustream. They have that in your hometown too. So you don't need to come stalk our boys, okay? It's there also, all right? I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just, Carrie, you shouldn't have sat on the road that they're on because now everyone knows who they are. That's okay. I'm just kidding. But anyway, this week, um, you know, I titled it. <laughs> I entitled this talk, Do Discipleship. D-O-O, Discipleship. It's one of my new words. Because it actually talks about what they did when they were together. Because what they did when they were in the small groups and in the big groups, that's critical too, right? Not just they gathered together. I mean, lots of us gathered together for lots of reasons. But what they did when they gathered together is really important. It's really important. And so we're going to look at that, what they did when they gathered together. We're going to look at the effect that it had on them and the community they're in. And lastly, we're going to look at, and this is the most important, what caused them to want to be together so much? What was it? Because it was craziness. I mean, it was crazy. And we're going to look at why they were so crazy about being together and the reflection of what that means for a disciple of Jesus Christ. So let's go back to Acts 2, 40 to 47. We're going to read that. If you don't have a Bible, we have free Bibles right there and by the other white pole. We'd love for you to take those home. If you don't have a Bible, we love the Bible at River City Church. It's the foundation for everything that we do and everything that we teach. And so here we go. Acts 2, 40 to 47. What did they do? With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them. Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Let's pray. Jesus, we just pray that you would come now through the power of your spirit, 
that you would open our eyes to the truth of your word, that you would reveal to our hearts the things that we need to know to be your disciples. And more than anything, Lord, we want to see the beauty of who you are worked out today in this scripture so that like the first disciples, we too would desire to do crazy things for your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 42, that's the key verse today that we're going to look at. I'm actually going to blow through what they did in the groups to get to the better part of the talk. And so just hang on, all right? In big, oh, here, I'm going to read verse 42. They devoted, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayer. So there's three things there, right? Apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. Breaking of bread and prayer are one. It looks like four, but there's really one. That was like worship, okay? And so they did these things whenever they were together. Big groups and small groups. And they always did the same things, okay? It's not the only thing that they did, but Jesus is teaching us. The apostles are teaching us. Luke wants us to know when we gather together that we should be doing these three things. That these three things are key in us growing to be more like Jesus. No, there's three. There's three. There's three. Worship. Worship. Mary. Mary. Don't screw with me here. (laughs) Breaking of bread. I'm going to show you. Breaking of bread and prayer. That was worship. They were worshiping together. Okay, that was worship. Okay, so there's three. Tim Keller. Tim Keller says this. I'm seeing this talk. You don't mess with Tim Keller, Mary. You know what I'm saying? There's learning. There's loving and there's liturgy. Liturgy. Learning, loving, and liturgy. I know that's a religious word. This means worship. Okay? Breaking of bread. That's not eating a meal today. That's celebrating the Lord's Supper. I'm getting away ahead of myself. Okay? Anyway, there's those three things. Okay? Learning, loving, and liturgy. Again, this, these are Tim Keller's words. I'm going to break it down. Add to something that he's already done and make it better. Okay? So here we go. What? You don't think I can do that? Watch. Listen to his talk on Acts 2.42. It's 40 minutes long. I'm breaking it into three talks. It's so good. All right, here we go. The first thing that Keller misses. And he doesn't even talk about devoted. What does the word devoted mean? I mean, that is the kicker. That is the key piece of this puzzle, Tim. Come on, get with it. It's the key piece. Devoted means this, in in the original language, to continue to do something. And you kind of know this. I'm just saying it because it makes me look smart, okay? To continue to do something with intense effort, with the possible implication of despite difficulty. Okay, so it's going to be hard. So you continue to do something that you know is going to be hard. That's what it means to be devoted to something, okay? To devote oneself, to keep on, to persist in, okay? And so when we look at these three things, it says, and so they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. They worked at it. They knew it was going to be difficult, but they were devoted to it. They were devoted to fellowship. They knew that fellowship was going to be difficult, but they were focused on it. They persevered in it. Worship, they knew this was going to be difficult. This wasn't normal for them. It wasn't natural for them, but they knew they were devoted to it. They were focused on it. They persisted in it, knowing that along the way, there'd be difficulty, now, for many of us, we're like, oh, yeah, 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 I, I, I do the apostles' teaching. But, you, but then when it gets difficult, like, you just stop, right? You just kind of stop. It's kind of like whenever you're learning a new skateboard trick. Take it from me, Mr. Skateboarder. You know, if you do the trick one time, does that mean you can do the trick? No. No. If you're a guitar player and you hear a piece of music or a piano player as a difficult lick or a difficult run or whatever, and you play it one time, you get it one time, does that mean you know it? 
No. How do you get to know it? How do you really get? You have to be devoted to it, don't it? I mean, you got to press on. you got to nail it every time, every time, every time. It takes work and it takes persistence. That's the picture we get when we look at the effort and the mindset of these disciples, these first disciples, when they were spending time together, when they were working on it, taking the effort, making the effort in themselves. In Hebrews 10.23, it says this. The author says, Let us hold unswervingly, 10.23-25, Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for, we, for he who promised is faithful. So it's like, hey guys, let's hold on to the hope, to the original hope that we have. Because the one who made us hope, Jesus, the one who promised us, he's faithful. All right? And then he says, and let us consider how we may spur one another on. This is fellowship, meeting together. How we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. Okay? And so we see disciples. This is what it means to be a disciple. This is what the, the, the first point that Tim Keller misses that I'm making that you need to realize is that these things are going to be difficult in your life. These things aren't going to happen naturally. They're going to need, you're going to need to persevere in them. You're going to need to work on them. So here's what the three things are. Learning. They studied the apostles' teaching. Okay, and, and the, what they're talking about here is not the Old Testament teaching, but the New Testament teaching. The apostles were in the New Testament. It's what they were teaching, and that's what they studied. That's what they were devoted to. That's what they were committed to. They studied it. They digested it. They meditated on it. They memorized it. They made it a part of their life. In big group settings, this is what they did. And in small group settings, this is what they did. So if you're thinking like, well, how do I do that? Whatever. I'll tell you how. Get a study Bible. That's the first step. Buy a study Bible. The next thing you might want to do is get a commentary on something that you're reading. Or you might want, online, there's tons of resources to do this. There's lots of resources that you can pursue and develop in your understanding of what the Bible teaches us. And you can listen to lots of sermons, not mine. You can listen to other sermons if you want, you know, that are really good, that teach us what does it mean? What are the apostles trying to teach us? What is Jesus trying to teach us? What did Jesus' life look like? And what the blessing that we have living on this side of the cross, the resurrection, is that all the Old Testament now also has relevance to us because it points to Jesus. So the whole Bible is what we're supposed to be studying. We're supposed to be devoted to understanding and learning and meditating and working this into our life, knowing that it's going to be difficult. Number two, loving. And they're talking about fellowship here, meeting together, okay? They loved each other. Again, and we would say, oh, yeah, I love River City Church. I love everybody at River City Church. Really? Do you? No. No. You love some people at River City Church. But again, what they're talking about here is being devoted to loving more and more and more. Being devoted to fellowship. Being devoted to sharing their life. Being devoted at levels that not that the world relates to each other, but that Christ is calling us to relate to each other. Where we share each other's burdens. Where we get to know each other. Where we get in each other's business. Where we let other people in our business. We get to know. We work this in. We're devoted to it because it's hard. And we have to be vulnerable. What happens in that is we receive this freedom. Oh my goodness, thank you, Lord. I don't have to be this perfect person. That's what happens when you share your junk that's in your trunk with somebody else. And they see who you are and that you love them still. That brings freedom. And it makes you realize, oh, I just, it's Jesus. He's the one. He's the one that matters. He's the one that we lead people to. He's the one that we're reminded of when we share our stuff and we're still loved. And it's so important. We don't hide our flaws in these places. We don't pretend 
that we're someone we're not. We're honest. And again, this is big group, it's small group. And so in terms of your growth as a disciple, that's one of the things that's kind of the litmus test. You know, are you on, is there someone, is there a group in your life of people that you're being honest with, that you're revealing your heart to, that you're trusting with your baggage, and that, and that, and that then they're taking you to Jesus? You know, my wife right now is in core, and um, she uh, just has been, you know, she says, everywhere I go now, and I see these women that I'm in core with, immediately the conversation is just like, Woo, you know, down here. It's just really deep. You know, she's been a Christian for 20 years. She's had relationships with, you know, with women, and there's women outside of core that she loves. But she says there's this environment that's fostered as we share our stories with each other that creates this depth that automatically happens. That's what they're talking about here. You know, when I, we get together, the, the church leadership gets together every week. We share our mess-ups. We share our good things. We, we rejoice. and we, we just talk about everything, every part of our life. We reveal to each other because we take the power the enemy has put, you know, we take the power away from our brokenness then. And we embrace Jesus in that environment, knowing that we're forgiven, reminding each other, you're forgiven. It's okay. We love you. So does Jesus. Fellowship, it's so hard, but it's not an option. This isn't an option. If, it was, if, if they were devoted to this, if this was essential for the first disciples, then certainly it's essential for us. And again, I'm not like here beating you up like, oh man, I suck, I'm not, I mean, I stink. I'm not in, I'm trying to stop using that word. I'm not in these small groups, I'm not doing that. I'm just saying, this is the model, all right? I'm trying to convince you that this is the way of the disciple, what it looks like in your life. It doesn't mean that everyone has to go do court. It doesn't mean that everyone has to go buy commentaries. It's not a formula. But the disciples are showing us, you know, Luke wants us to know that, hey, this is what happened in the New Testament. This is what the first disciples did when they gathered together. And it's important that we do the same thing. They welcomed and affirmed. They admonished and comforted. They were committed to fellowship. And number three, so that's learning, that's loving, and this is liturgy, worship. The third one, Mary, third one, third one. I can't see the poles in the way. The third one, prayer and breaking of bread. And we know it says the breaking of the bread. A lot of people say, well, every time we get, to get, every time we get together and have a meal, that's what they're really talking about. And it's really not what they're talking about here, okay? It says the breaking of the bread. And I talked about this in communion two weeks ago. And I said, no, they're specifically talking about celebrating and worshiping and remembering Jesus Christ and what he accomplished on that night, the final Passover, really, that he was the broken lamb of God that we are drawn to, that we look to, that is our solution, that is our beauty, that is our driving force for our life. And they were getting together and they were having the Lord's Supper together, celebrating who Jesus was, worshiping and praising him and also in their prayers to him. It was all worship to him. And again, this was happening in big groups and small groups. It's why we structured Wednesday night the way we did. We didn't even mean to do this. It just happened, you know? But what do we do? When we get together on Wednesday night, we have worship. We celebrate the Lord. We remember Jesus. And then we go and we have the apostles teaching and we study the word and we study the implications of Jesus in our life. And then at the end, we have prayer ministry in the groups to make sure that the knowledge we've learned doesn't leave our heart, but finds root there and makes its way to changing us. You see, teaching without worship, it's just knowledge. It's just knowledge. If it's not empowered by the Spirit, 
And knowledge that's not empowered by the Spirit, that finds its way to our heart, that humbles us, will usually lead to pride and self-glorification. Because, oh, look at what I know. Let me teach you something. You know, I mean, and, we, and it will inflate us. The enemy will take what has been given and just twist it enough to where we become prideful. And we know that pride's the root of all evils. Bad, not good to be prideful. And so these are the things that they do. You know, I met with this, um, and, that, you know, and that's what happens in worship. That's why they, they include worship here. It's because the knowledge we have in our head finds its way to our heart as we express it to Jesus. The Holy Spirit comes, empowers it, makes it real in our heart. And that happens in worship. I met a, um, there's a theologian that started this sem- uh, seminary or whatever over in England that I met with, one of my first, when I went over there to train for six months. And uh, I'd been in seminary. And in seminary, it's it, it, not all the professors, but there is a, and they would even admit this, that they're really weighted heavily on teaching and knowledge and teaching about the knowledge of scripture and the knowledge of God. And those are all great things. But um, there's very little I think there's one worship course, I think, in the whole seminary. And, um, and that's not unusual. That's just that's the way it is. And uh, anyway, I went and met with this, this professor. And he said, Antley, he says, when worship, when, um, when learning or knowledge ceases to be worship, it's a waste. Because I was talking to him about, well, what are we going to be talking about? Like, what are we going to do? And why do I need to do this? You know, I just want to learn about the gifts of the Spirit. And he says, Antley, the reason it's important is because knowledge should drive us to worship. And when it stops doing that, it stops glorifying God, it's, it's a waste of time. And that's why we see what we see here. And whenever they did these things, you know, they did the learning, they did the loving and fellowship, and they did the, the worship together. There's two things that happened. And we can see this in, in uh, verse 44. They grew deeper and more intimate with each other. And they became more generous. I mean, look at verse 44. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Here's how Keller paraphrases that. They were so generous with, generous with their goods that there was no poor Christian among them. That was a natural occurrence. That's what happened within their little body as they studied the apostles' word, as they spent time in fellowship, they were devoted to that. And as they worshiped together, the natural response of the spirit was to make them more generous. As they experienced more of Jesus, they became more generous with each other. And it says that there was not a need that didn't go unmet in this body. I mean, remember how many there were here. There was 3,000 by the end of the first day, 5,000 a few days later. Not a poor Christian among them. As they pursued these things. And then in verse 47, it also says that the group grew wider. They grew deeper, but then they grew wider. And praising God and enjoying the the favor of all people. It says they were praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved in verse 47. Every day the church grew. It doesn't say this in there, but they had these tracks. And they made them. And there were like these like four Hebrew laws on them. And they passed them out. And these, it was like this program they created. You don't read about it in the Bible, but this is what must have happened because this is what we do. And so I think people who do this are being led by the Spirit. And we just haven't seen it in the Word. And so, no, of course they didn't do that. It says they had favor with all people. Why did people come and be with them? Why did, people, how, why did the Lord add to their number? Because people saw what was happening and they just wanted to be with them. They saw what was happening. They're like, whoo, I want some of that, baby. Come on, give me it. 
And their hearts were open to the spirit. They wanted the the love and the fellowship and the learning and the difference that was reflected in the community. There was no evangelistic anything. They were just being faithful to the three L's, you know, learning and loving and living together and worshiping the liturgy and God. And what happened is people saw that there were no needs. People outside of the room, there were no needs. There was this level of love. And we know because of church history that they were also very generous with people outside of the body too, that weren't a part of their group. We know that the first Christians, Romans would put babies on hillsides that they didn't want. And Christians would just go look for them, find them and bring them into their community. The first offering was taken for people that were imprisoned. They would buy their freedom back with the offering that was taken in the church. That's why we have offering to buy back people's freedom. That's why worship and how we give is is a demonstration of where do we want, do we want people to find freedom in Christ or do we want to find freedom in money? It's why it's a part of our worship service. It drives us to this reality that the new Christians were living and that they knew when we do these things, people will want to be a part of us. But many of us have come from places where we don't want to be a part of the Christian group. We've been hurt by the church for whatever reason, unintentional, usually people with great intention you know, we just formed this party committee at River City Church, and it's a bunch of people. It was the easiest committee we've ever formed. We like threw the email out, and people were like, fium, 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 fium. I want to be on, I want to be on, I'll bring this, I'll bring that, I'll do this, I'll do that. It's a party committee. And the purpose of it is, is um, just to have fun together so that we'll win the favor of people who visit us. We'll win the favor of the community that we live in, we'll win the favor. And you know, when we bring them there, guess what we're not gonna do? We're not gonna have a dunking booth like with the devil on it when he goes in the you know, black water. We're not doing that. We're not gonna have cupcakes that when you finish eating, oh, look, John three sixteen, And on the bottom of the cupcake thing, we're not gonna have cookies that are in the shape of a cross. We're not gonna do that, I promise. We're just gonna love people. We're gonna be together. We're going to celebrate Jesus in our relationships with each other, knowing that that will win favor with people. People will see what we have and they'll want it. That is the most powerful evangelical tool we have as a church. We have the greatest reason to celebrate, to be joyful. We have the greatest opportunity in our lives together of demonstrating what the gospel looks like. And that's what we see happening here. Them growing deeper together inwardly and then outwardly people seeing that and being drawn into it. Are you guys getting this? Okay, good, 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 okay? I'm not even to the best part of the talk. I don't have that much time. But um, so we see these three things. We need them all. You take one of them out and things crumble. And I'm not gonna go into why that happens, but it just happens. And we've been a part of ministries that happens. There's no worship. There's no good teaching. There's none of this. There's none of that. And it crumbles. All three are needed, okay? And so I've shown you who met together two weeks ago really diverse, crazy diversity, crazy diversity that points to God in and of itself, meeting together all the time, everywhere. Now I've shown you what they did, right? When the first disciples met together. And I've said, here's the effect of what they did that will naturally occur, that we should look forward to and that we should experience as a church. But I haven't answered the question of why, have I? Why would they get together? I mean, you see these Christians. I mean, most of us get together in groups of people who, like, we have the same likes. Like, we all get together to watch a Gator game if we're all Gators. Or we'll all get together and watch the Olympics because we're all Americans. Or if we're all Republicans, we get together and celebrate our Republicanism. Or if we're all Democrats, we get together and celebrate our Democratism. 
But we get together because we like being together with people who have the same temperaments as us, the same likes as us. They have the same shape on life as us. And we don't want to be around people. Usually we don't be around people that are going to challenge us. We don't want to be around people that are different from us. We want to be around people that are going to affirm our prejudices, not cause them to rise up and deal with them. So why was it? I mean, these Christians, they, they're meeting together unlike any other group in the history of the world from then and from then on. What would cause them to do this? What was the power? Was it just discipline? No. No, it wasn't just, hey, you guys really need to do this, so do it, okay? No, that would not, that would carry us. We've all been there, haven't we? We get excited about Jesus for a little while. We're like, oh, I'm waking up at five and every morning. I'm going to read the word twice before I go to work, and then I'm going to do this. And we, we do it for about a week, right? And we're like, oh, I'll just, I'll listen to it on the way to work. And then... We, we kind of edge off because discipline alone will not do this. It does, it's crazy. So I'm going to tell you why. The why in this story is the most important thing. It's what separates us from everyone else. We see this in verse 47. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. Praising God. Oh, it's not up there. Praising God. <laughs> Praising God. You see, that's what separated these, these first Christians, is that everything they were doing was a result of their praise and their desire to praise Jesus because of the experience that they had with Jesus. You see, praising God is what they were doing when they were learning together. Praising God is what they were doing when they were having fellowship together. Praising God is actually what they were doing when they were worshiping, obviously. But praising God, looking to Jesus, experiencing Jesus, and getting that joy out with each other and with the world is what was happening in everything that they did because they had experienced the beauty of Christ. They experienced the glory of Christ. The power of the Spirit had come into their life. And when they met together, they wanted to be together to express it to each other. And those are the things that happen. C.S. Lewis has a great quote that talks about this. And, and this is, I really want to communicate this well to you because it's really challenged me. And I went to bed last night thinking of all these crazy illustrations. Like, how can I do this? It's like a power plant. And it's like the nuclear, you know, all these things. But I want to explain this quote to you because it, it nails it. It nails this reality of why they did what they did. And he says this, C.S. Lewis I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise does not merely express but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation or perfect ending. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. Now, the first time I heard that, I had the same look on my face as you did. Antley, you might not want to be teaching like Tim Keller tries to teach because I don't think you're that smart, all right? I read this quote, and I was like, what in the world? I was like, he hinged the whole back of the talk on this quote. And so I read it again, and, and this, is what it's, what, this is what C.S. Lewis is trying to say, is that we delight to praise what we enjoy. Disciples had this experience of joy that came from Jesus, and it drove them to praise Jesus as a result of it. 
And Lewis says that, that that praising God, it's not until they actually got it out. It's not until they praised God that the original, the joy that they saw in Christ was made complete. It doesn't just express the joy they have in Christ. C.S. Lewis says it completes their joy. It adds to, it builds up, it makes it complete. You know, there's times where Laura and I will be getting ready to go out to a fancy place or whatever. And I should do this more, but I don't. And she's like getting ready and she's like spending time on looking pretty for me. I mean, she's going the extra mile. And I'll think, I'll be like, oh man, she looks hot. She looks pretty nice. She looks so, man. And I can tell the effort that she's making and I won't say anything. Mistake. <laughs> Big mistake. And we'll be like driving in the car. She's like, you didn't even say anything about the way you looked. I was like, I thought it. I thought it. I, I promise, honey, I was thinking it. I really was. C.S. Lewis knows, Antley, if you don't express it, not for her sake, but for yours, the joy is not made complete. The joy for me and what I see in her beauty is not made complete. It's not realized, fully realized until it is expressed. You know, think about it. This is, this, I mean, if you're wondering if this is true or not, think about when you get engaged. Ladies, when you've gotten engaged, what happens? Oh, I can't wait to tell everyone. I'm going to tell everyone. Who am I going to call? I have a list. I have this list right here. And who's going to call first? Because if I don't call them first, then they're going to get mad. And then da, 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 right? Why is that? Why is that? Because the joy you're feeling of this moment in your life, the joy you're feeling until you get it out there, it's not complete. And this is what we see happening with these new Christians. They've experienced this joy in Jesus, this amazing encounter with this beautiful, the most beautiful thing they've ever seen. And this beauty is driving them to praise God, to get it out. That's why they met together so much, because they had to. They wanted to, because they had experienced this beautiful, beautiful Savior. And C.S. Lewis's point is beautiful objects demand praise. They demand it. You're being at a sporting event and someone catches like this awesome, remember the touchdown the Steelers made when they threw it to Thomason in the corner of the end zone that won the game? And, and I hate the Steelers, but you're like, that was amazing. And you're like, look at that, look at that. Or you go to a movie by yourself. Well, I mean, I do that every once in a while. But anyway, and, you, and like there's this amazing movie or there's like this amazing music that you see. And you're like, dude, you got to go see this movie. Did you see that catch? Wow, woo. It's us getting the praise of the beautiful thing that we've seen. And if a catch is beautiful or a piece of music is beautiful or beginning to engage is beautiful, imagine the beauty of these first disciples as they experience Jesus. And it manifested itself and praising God all the time, everywhere they were. John, 1 John 1, 4 says this. John's writing to him, he says, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. I'm writing this down and getting it out to you so that our joy will be made complete. Isn't that cool? Isn't that amazing? I've read that my whole life. God speaks something to that, and all of a sudden, it's not about me 
being a better studier of the Bible. It's not about me being driven to fellowship. I mean, discipline is required at some level, but more than that, it's about me seeing the beauty of Jesus, being drawn to Jesus, seeing his beauty, growing in his beauty, growing in his love. And out of that, that is the power. That is the engine. That is the thing that will drive us to these three L's that will drive us to want to be with people who are different from us, that will drive us to want to be with them at crazy times in the day for hours on end, every Sunday, and then in the homes. That's what does it when we experience the beauty of Christ. You know, it's why, you know, people get up here and they give testimonies and they're like nervous and they're shaking and they're crying. Well, why would they go through that? They're getting it out. They've experienced the beauty of Christ and they're up here telling their story because they're just getting it out. You know, why do we drag people on the life course? Because we've experienced the beauty of Jesus on the life course. And we're just, we're bringing people into that because we're just getting it out there. You know, why do you tell people about River State Church and bring them here? It's it's not because of me. It's not because of the the band. It's not because of the building. It's It's because you've experienced something. You've seen the beauty of Christ in In the things of River City, you've seen and experienced Jesus. And you want people to see his beauty and you're just getting it out. I mean, it's why you see me do crazy illustrations. I mean, really, really work at trying to explain things like this to you. It's just me. It's the way God has wired me to praise him and to just get it out. With musicians or creative or artists or dancers, it's the way they get it out. And so practically what this looks like when we're loving each other in fellowship, as we experience the beauty, we're drawn together to praise God together. And someone comes to us and they say, I just lost this person in my life. We don't just say, oh, that's, I'm so sorry. That's too bad. I love you. No, we praise Jesus. We bring them to the cross and we say, praise Jesus who has conquered death who is greater than death. Let's praise Jesus. We bring them to the beauty of Christ and what he has accomplished on the cross to bring them comfort. When people come to us, when we're in fellowship and people unload their brokenness and their sinfulness in our life, do we say, oh, don't worry about it? No, we bring them to Jesus and we say, praise Jesus who died for that sin and who loves you still. And we reveal to them the beauty of Jesus. We're praising Jesus. People who are confused with the gospel, who who don't know Jesus, where do we take them? We take them to Jesus. We take them to his word. And we show them praise Jesus and looking at his life and his testimony of truth. We bring people to the beauty of Jesus. And without the beauty of Jesus, Christianity is like every other religion that is about work. And discipline. Being a disciple of Jesus, this is where I can say an exaggerated statement, like has very little to do with discipline, which is partly true. Being a disciple of Jesus has a lot more with experiencing the beauty of Jesus than it has with working hard to know him. If you want to know Jesus, if you want to be a disciple of Jesus, it begins with knowing Jesus experiencing his beauty. And out of that beauty, you will naturally desire and want to get, get that out, tell your story, reveal that beauty to the world in whatever way the Holy Spirit leads you. So we're gonna stand now.
And the band is going to come and lead us in a song about the beauty of Jesus Christ. And we're going to worship and we're going to praise and we're going to be reminded of how beautiful Jesus is. Okay, you get the learning, you get the loving, you get the liturgy piece, you know the effects that that will have, but none of that is important. None of that matters if we don't experience and are driven by the beauty of Jesus Christ. So we're going to sing this song called The Beautiful One about Jesus. And in the end of the song, it says, my soul, my soul must sing and must get out. And that's why. It's why. Because when you've experienced the beauty of Jesus, when you've experienced the love of Jesus, the healing of Jesus, the miracle of Jesus, the power of Jesus in your life, you have to get it out. What a great picture of Greg, the father of someone who just loves his boy so much. He's got to get it out. He's got to tell the story. Because look at what Jesus has done. Look at how beautiful Jesus is. Look at how amazing Jesus is. So we're going to create space now for us to experience Jesus. And we're going to lead into ministry where you can come forward.